Please turn to John chapter 13. John chapter 13. And this is where we're going to begin this morning. Uh, We're going to be looking at a number of other passages in John's gospel as well. Uh, But we do indeed today begin a nine-week series through chapters 13 to 16, uh, which is Jesus' farewell mission discourse. And I'm calling the series, as you see there in the bulletin, Trinity, Mission, and Me, how the family of the triune God overflows with his love, light, and life-giving work in a world that hates him. And I want to start by reading just one verse, verse 1 of chapter 13. So hear the word of our living God. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And let me lead us in prayer as we look to God for his help. And I want to pray in accordance with how Paul prayed at the end of Ephesians chapter 3, and so I'm going to be paraphrasing that prayer. Father, we do bow our knees before you. You are the one from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. And we pray that according to the riches of your glory, that you would grant us to be strengthened with power through your spirit in our inner beings so that Christ would dwell in our hearts through faith and that you would help us being rooted and grounded in your love to have strength to comprehend with all of the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that we may be filled with all of your fullness. We thank you, Father, that you are able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to your power at work within us. And so to you, be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. And amen. Well, with these words in John 13, verse 1, Jesus, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. With these words, we are ushered into an upper room in a home in Jerusalem where Jesus, the good shepherd, soon to lay down his life for his sheep, shares a final meal with his disciples. And he's going to shock them by washing their feet, after which Judas, the betrayer, will depart. And Jesus will then shock them again by speaking of his own departure, followed then by extensive words of instruction and promise as he prepares them for their mission in his absence. And then he'll pour out his soul to his father in prayer. And then he'll go to the cross to drink the cup that his father gave him to be the sacrificial lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world. And these words in verse 1 of chapter 13 really stand like a massive floodlight over John's entire gospel, illuminating the significance of what's gone on before and of all that will follow. 
And the Holy Spirit is telling us with these words that everything that transpires is the display. It's the outworking. It's the overflow of Jesus' love for His own. You ask, what does the love of the Father in the Son look like? And it looks like this. Having loved His own who were in the world, He loved them to the end. C.H. Spurgeon said of this, quote, I always feel when I speak upon this topic as if I would rather sit down and be silent than speak, because it's not so much a theme for speech as for meditation. Expressive silence, he says, must sing this hymn in your soul's ears. Jesus didn't merely think of you and pity you, but loved you and betrothed you to himself forever. End quote. To the end. What does that mean? Well, it means to the full extent, completely and comprehensively. Jesus loved his own to the full extent of completing his mission of redemption that the Father had sent him on, which is why he declared on the cross, it is finished. And Jesus also loved his own to the full extent of their need to be forgiven, to be cleansed, to be made children of God, and to be kept eternally safe and secure. You see, Jesus loved his own as he anticipated the cross. He loved his own at the cross, the preeminent display of his love. And he loves his own after the cross through his resurrection into eternity. Friends, if you belong to Jesus this morning, uh, through repentance and faith, he wants you, as he wants me, as he wants all of his people, to be convinced and to be assured of his love for you. I would ask you, do you have this assurance and this conviction? Do you know his forgiveness? Do you know his cleansing? Do you know his peace and his joy and his power? And does this conviction and this assurance, does it consume you and does it shape your entire life that you are beloved of God through Jesus? Does this assurance inform your understanding of the very nature of the church? as God's beloved sheep, as God's beloved flock? And does this assurance inflame your devotion to exalt Christ by loving and serving others, by pouring your life out in love and service to others despite their sins and weaknesses and imperfections and despite your sins and weaknesses and imperfections? Friend, does this assurance of Jesus' holy, unending love enable you to endure amid trouble, suffering, and sorrow? May God deepen and strengthen our assurance of His love in Christ for us and for all of His people. May He be pleased, even as Paul affirmed at the end of Ephesians 3, to do more, immeasurably more, than all that we could ask or imagine in this regard. 
Now, as I said, these words in verse 1 stand like a massive floodlight over John's gospel, illuminating the significance of what's gone before and what will follow. And so what I want to do today is survey the majestic vision of John's whole gospel, because this vision provides the full context for understanding chapter 13, verse 1, and all that follows. And I call this the majestic vision of truth because it is the revelation of God's eternal, unchanging truth. Jesus said in John chapter 8, verse 31, that those who abide in his word will know the truth and the truth will set them free. And in chapter 18, when he's on trial before Pilate, the Roman uh, official, Pilate, he says to Pilate that he came to bear witness to the truth. And Pilate then speaks really for all of rebellious humanity when he scoffingly asks the question, what is truth? It's a question of our age, isn't it? It's the question of fallen humanity. Well, I'm here to tell you in no uncertain terms that the gospel of John, along with the whole of Scripture, emphatically answers that question. This, this is truth. God is truth. And that is what we see. And so the majestic vision of John is about God's truth and his true holy love in Jesus Christ. Friends, this is about reality. This is about what's real. This is about the way things really are. And how we need to hear this again and again and again, don't we, in a world filled with darkness and deceit and death. This is the truth. This is the light. And this is the life. And so there are three main themes that are prominent in John that comprise this majestic vision of truth. And these themes don't really unfold in just a sequential point-by-point kind of way in the narrative. Rather, they're the main themes, the, the main theological truths that echo everywhere in the gospel. They're woven through the fabric of the whole book. And there are many sub-themes as well, but we're going to zero in on these three main themes of John's majestic vision. And I want to give them to you in three words. Glory, mission, and call. Glory, mission, and call are the heart of these three themes. So first of all, theme number one, glory. And I'll expand it just a bit and say a three-person glory. A three-person glory. And this is speaking, of course, of the truth and of the mystery of God's eternal triune glory. His transcendent radiance, His unequaled splendor. One God... Three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, each distinct yet inseparable in their operations, equal in power and glory. 
Now, despite many feeble attempts to describe or illustrate the Trinity, maybe you've heard of some of these, you know, he's like a three-leaf clover, or he's kind of like water, and there's the forms of liquid and ice and steam, or maybe you've heard the one about him being an egg, that he's, you know, got a shell, and there's a yolk, and there's a, a gooey white part, and none of those even remotely explain the Trinity, There's no human earthly illustration to explain or illustrate what is infinite transcendent truth. We simply see what God has revealed of himself and are to fall down in worship and adoration and praise. We see the Trinity in John's gospel at the very beginning in chapter 1, which echoes words from Genesis chapter 1 with the Spirit's presence implied. And so there in verse 1 of John 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. And then a little bit later in chapter 1, we see triune glory again when John the Baptist testifies of Jesus' baptism in verse 32. And we're told, John the Baptist bore witness and said, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Emphatically and explicitly, God is revealing himself as triune, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Towards the end of the gospel, in chapter 20, we see triune glory when the now risen Jesus declares to his disciples in verses 21 through 23, he says, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit, which, by the way, I believe is anticipating the pouring out of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, as we read of that in Acts chapter 2. He goes on to say then in verse 23 of John 20, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. But again, we see God's triune reality, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so we see this clearly declared at the beginning of the gospel. We see it near the end of the gospel and throughout the entire gospel again and again and again. We see the the reality of, of our glorious transcendent triune God. And there's really a synergism, if you will, of radiating glory between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. In other words, we learn in John 16 that it's the Spirit of God that seeks to magnify Jesus but also Jesus in his glory, and particularly at the cross, he seeks to glorify the Father. In fact, in chapter 17, as Jesus prays to the Father, he begins that prayer by saying in verse 1 of chapter 17, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. There's this synergism of radiating glory between the Father and the Son through the Spirit. 
And then at the end of his prayer in chapter 17, and you might flip over there if you're not already there, Jesus speaks of the eternal, holy love that exists between the Father and the Son, with the Holy Spirit's presence implied within this triune love. And notice how he prays at the end of this prayer, chapter 17, verse 24. He says, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, and he's referring to all who would believe on his name. He says, I pray uh, that they would be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world doesn't know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. And so we see this three-person glory, the eternal triune God full of blazing, transcendent light and life and sharing a relationship, sharing a community of holy love within his triune reality. And so what we see is that God's very nature is radiating life. And it's overflowing love. And it's constantly seeking to draw others into his glorious, holy life. And this is why the Trinity created everything that he created. And this leads to the second main theme that we see in John. Not only glory, but mission. Mission. Because the glorious triune God's nature overflows with all that he is, he is in his very nature missional. Missional. So God's very nature is missional. Radiating his light, overflowing with his love and seeking to give life. You know what John 3 verse 16 says, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life he's missional in his very nature and it's important to understand that God's missional heart of holy love it did not start when mankind sinned in the garden you see it's existed from all of eternity He created all that exists. And He created man and woman in His image. And we're told in Genesis 2 that He breathed into them life. This was the overflow of His life. This was the overflow of His love. This was the heart of His heart to create, to give life, to bring into the fullness of all that He is. But now because mankind has sinned, His own missional nature has not stopped. He continues to seek. And so he has sent his son because of his love to save and to restore. And so I want us to see as we think about this mission, it's really a three-layer mission. 
We've seen a three-person glory of God and and now a three-layer mission. And I've really spoken of each of these layers already. Here they are, love, light, and life. This is the overflow of God's nature, His mission of love and light and life. And we see this again and again and again in John's gospel. And so love, His holy love, His righteous love, His true love. That's what we see spoken of in John 13 verse 1, right? Jesus, having loved His own who were in the world, He loved them to the end. So it's spoken of in John 3.16, for God so loved the world. This was what Jesus was zealous for in His prayer as we saw at the end of John 17. To see those who belong to Him come into the fullness of, of this love that He and the Father through the Spirit have known through all eternity. Love has to do with the motivation. It has to do with the affection. It has to do with the desire to bless and to bring goodness to the Beloved. Within the fullness of all of God's righteous and holy and good character. And so we see this love existing eternally between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. But now it's His love to bring eternal good and blessing to the beloved. And friends, this is true love. That's so desperately needed by sinners in a dark and a deceitful world where there is nothing but the enslavement and the intoxication of false love. There's probably no word in our language, in any language, that maybe is used more than the word love, and yet it is so often confused and perverted and distorted. It has nothing to do with the glorious God who is the source of all love. And this love is the motivation. It's why God does what He does, because He is who He is. We learn in 1 John chapter 4, God is love within the fullness of all that He is. Well, thus we see the second layer of this mission, light. Light. Light has to do with revelation. Light has to do with what exposes, with what shines, with what illuminates. And so we see light spoken of again and again and again, not only here in John, but but we see this grounded in the Old Testament. And even in a sense in the book of Genesis, when God creates and when He says, let there be light, we understand He was creating the physical light of the sun and that which was ultimately reflected in the moon. But in a fuller, deeper way, He's given the light of the knowledge of Himself in His Word. Because God's love shines and He gives, He reveals. And so back in chapter 1, at the very beginning of John's Gospel, following what I read earlier in verses 1 to 3, in verse 4, we read this, In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Lay hold of that promise, beloved. The darkness has not overcome the light of God that shines. In chapter 8, Jesus declared of himself emphatically in verse 12, I am the light of the world. And whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Now, we're not going to take time this morning to fully explore it, but we'll see this again and again as we move through the mission discourse. 
that God in Jesus reveals his light, reveals his truth in two different ways. First of all, through his works. And then second of all, in connection with his works, his words. The light of God, his revelation, his truth is revealed through his works and through his words. And throughout the gospel, over and over again, Jesus displays the works of the Father through his miraculous signs, which point to and which culminate in his crucifixion and his resurrection, the greatest of his works. And he continually declares the words of the Father. So God displays his works and he declares his words in and through Jesus. And this is massively significant. One place that Jesus speaks of both his works and his words together is in chapter 14. You might look there in verses 10 and 11. And notice what Jesus says. The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Notice how he almost uses those terms synonymously, words and works. He says in verse 11, Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. You see, the love and the light of God displayed through the works and the words of Jesus. Well, you might say, well, what's the goal then of God's mission? given the motivation of his holy and righteous love, given the revelation of his light through his words and through his works in Jesus, what's the goal? What is it that God is seeking to accomplish in all of this? And that leads to the third layer of this mission, and it's this, life. Life which has to do with full, total participation, union in the very life of God through faith in Jesus. I read earlier uh, verse 4 of chapter 1. Maybe you noticed this. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. Again, in chapter 3, verse 16, as we already heard, God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have what? Eternal life, which speaks of the eternal duration, the, the eternal scope of this life that will come to its fullest realization in heaven, in eternity, when those who believe are with God, but we possess that very life now by faith. So it points to the future, but it's known in the present. Jesus said in John chapter 10, verse 10, in this chapter where he speaks of himself as the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep, he says in verse 10 of chapter 10, the thief comes only to steal and to kill and to destroy, but I came that they may have life and have it abundantly and have it to the full. In fact, the very end, near the very end of the book, in chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, and this is, this is John's uh, purpose statement for why he's written everything that he's written. He says this, verse 30 of chapter 20, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, 
But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in His name. You say, what's the nature of this life? Well, it's the fullness. It's the fullness of God's triune eternal life known in the present, and it's centered in knowing Him. Being reconciled, being brought into His family as His very own child to know Him and to live with Him forever. Jesus said in His prayer in chapter 17, verse 3, He said, This is eternal life, that they may know You, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Now one theologian has summarized it this way. I think this is very helpful. He says, this life is, quote, the renewal of the whole life through participation in the divine life. The renewal of the whole life through participation in the divine life. That's the nature of this life that Jesus brings us in having come from God the Father through the Spirit. Well, you might ask the question, well, how does God bring this eternal life to us? How do we come to possess it? How do we come to share in it? And the first part of answering that question is, amazingly, through the death of Jesus Christ. He laid down His life in death in bearing the Father's wrath, as I mentioned earlier, in being the sacrificial Lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world so that all who believe on Him could have life in His name. In fact, Jesus said in chapter 6, verse 51, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And as we're going to see in a few moments, he goes on to speak of the fact that those who would believe on him, the nature of that belief is to eat his body, to drink his blood, which is speaking metaphorically of of comprehensive belief in his life and his death and his resurrection. But he laid down his life so that anyone who believes on him, who eats of him, would have life in his name. Chapter 12, verse 24, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone, but if it dies, it bears much fruit. And he's speaking primarily of his own impending death, which will be the means by which it will be the seed that breaks open in life for all who would believe on him. Well, another part of the question is, how do we receive this? How do we experience eternal life? And the answer is through the new birth. Through the new birth, which is received by repentance and faith. You see, John chapter 1, verses 12 and 13 says this, But to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God, part of God's family who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So Jesus declared to a righteous and a self-righteous, self-centered Pharisee named Nicodemus in John chapter 3, in verses 1 to 8, he said repeatedly, you must be born again. You must be born above. 
Our sin, our rebellion, and God's curse because of that is so deep and so dark and so pervasive, there is nothing else we can do to save ourselves. It's impossible. We must be born of God, and we receive Him through faith in Jesus. And so the new birth, this new life, is the means by which we come into the fullness of this. And so I would pause to to just ask you now, Have you been born again? Have you been born of God? Have you repented from your sin and from your self-sufficiency and from your self-worship and repented in the sense of then believing fully and only on Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior? Not looking to anything that you could ever do to save yourself from the penalty of your sin, nor to save yourself from the presence and the power of your sin, but looking only to Jesus. Jesus said, John 14, verse 6, I am the way, I am the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father but by me. You see, Jesus' crucifixion alone, alone, alone is sufficient to absorb all of God's judgment in your place. Alone sufficient to forgive and cleanse your sin permanently, fully, and completely. Jesus didn't come just to make bad people good. He came to make dead people alive. He came to make dead people alive. So John chapter 3 verse 36 says, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Right now, friend, do you live in God's life through faith in His Son? Or are you living under His wrath in your sin and in your rebellion? Flee to Christ. Flee to Christ now. Call out to Him in your soul now and be saved from His wrath and from the judgment that is coming. Flee to Him now. Well, this mission of love, this mission of light, this mission of life that flows from the Father through Jesus by the Holy Spirit, friends, this is the mission that the triune God now works to advance through His people, through His family, through the church. You see, this mission of love, light, and life is the mission that we are brought into if we've come to faith in Him by His grace and through the work of the Holy Spirit. And it's that very mission that now we participate in, in advancing in this world. This is why, as Jesus said, you might have heard it in chapter 20, verse 21, when I read that passage a few moments ago. He tells his disciples, as the Father sent me, so now I am sending you. And so we see this magnificent vision of truth that begins with God's three-person glory. And it overflows with God's three-layer mission of life, or of love, and of light, and of life through Christ's death and resurrection. And it leads to the question then, well, what response, what response does God require and demand to His glory and to His mission? None of us can be neutral to this. We all respond. 
How does he want us to respond? And the answer is the third main theme that we see in John's majestic vision of truth. God's call. God's call. And, you might be surprised, it's a three-part call. Trinity is good, and so the number three is good. So we see a three-part call that God demands, that he invites, that he entices, that he calls for a response. Now, ultimately, ultimately, the call is to believe. The call is to believe on Christ and to keep believing. Remember John 20, verse 31. Everything that John wrote wrote through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit was so that we would believe and keep believing on Him and thus have eternal life. But the question is raised then, well, what does it look like to believe? What does it look like? And this has to do with three different ways that we see this, at least three different ways that we see this pictured throughout John's gospel. So I'll just call this a three-part call Three ways we understand the nature of the call to believe. Here's the first. Come and see. Come and see. In chapter 1, verses 38 and 39, Jesus said this to a couple of John the Baptist's disciples who were curious about where Jesus was staying. staying. And Jesus' words to them were, come and see. And there's a full meaning to that, not only in that very specific historical moment, but it's, a, it's an invitation, it's a demand, it's a call that echoes throughout the entire gospel, really echoes throughout all of God's word again and again and again. Come and see, come and see, look at this one who is so glorious and know life through believing on him. A little bit later in chapter 1, verse 46 A man named Philip says to another man named named Nathaniel, come and see, come and see this one, referring to Jesus. And over in chapter 4, verses 28 and 29, tells us of this Samaritan woman whom Jesus had saved, whom he had brought to faith in himself. And upon her transformation, she goes into the town and finds all the townspeople. And she says to them, come and see a man who told me all that I ever did. Come and see. God is constantly saying to us, in one sense, through all that He's created in the entire universe, everything is saying, come and see this glorious God. But in a more particular sense, through His Word, He's constantly saying, come and see, come and see, come and see, come and see. In fact, in chapter 1, in the opening part of the Gospel, verse 14, Jesus says that, uh, speaking of the Word who was made flesh, I'm sorry, John says, speaking of the Word, Jesus who was made flesh, He says, we beheld His glory. Glory is of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. And you feel this impulse, you feel this sense that John is saying, we beheld His glory, I want you to see His glory. Let me ask you, in your field of vision in your life, what's glorious to you? Is it the fullness of glory, the fullness of beauty, the fullness of delight that is found in God alone? What things are you going to try to see and look at to find some sense of awe, some sense of thrill, some sense of excitement? For some of you, it's clicking on pornography on the internet. For others of you, it's going and buying more stuff. For others, it could be any number of other things. Where are you looking for glory? 
See, God is saying to all of us, even this morning, again and again and again and again, come and see. See my triune glory. See my glory manifest in the Lord Jesus Christ. See my love. See my light. See my life. Come and see. And he's revealed it in his word. It's important to understand. It's, 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 it's his glory that he reveals through his word. Jesus actually warned religious leaders who were given to Scripture, but as an end in itself, rather than seeing Him. In chapter 5, verses 39 and 40 in John's Gospel, He says, You diligently study the Scripture because you think that in them you, you have life, but yet you refuse to come to Me to have life. The Scriptures testify of Jesus. They testify of God's glory and purposes, His love and His light and His life in Jesus Ask God to give you eyes to see the brightness of His glory and come and see again and again and again. It's inexhaustible. And it'll thrill the field of your vision like nothing else will. We all have favorite places we like to go, don't we? We like to go up to Lake Tahoe. We like to go to Monterey. It's probably our favorite place to go. That's where we honeymoon and we go there again and again and again. And we were just there a couple of weeks ago. And you know what's strange? We never get tired of going there. Oh, it's Monterey. I'd rather go to the desert, you know. No, we love it. Why? It's beautiful. It's captivating. It thrills our our physical senses in terms of what we see. And we were there last time. We saw whales. We saw dolphins and all kinds of things. We want to go again and again and again. Friend, that's what God is saying to you. Come and see, come and see, come and see. Look at me by faith in all that I've revealed of myself in my word in the Lord Jesus Christ and come and see. That's the first part of the call to believe. The second part of the call to believe is this. I alluded to it earlier. Eat and drink. Eat and drink. You know, in John chapter 4, we read of this encounter that Jesus has with this Samaritan woman who was an absolute, the, the, the fact that he as a man and a Jew would interact with this woman as a Samaritan. There's just so many ways this was not politically correct. And yet God loved her. And Jesus went to minister to her and he knew the nature of her sin. He knew that she had had husband after husband after husband looking for satisfaction. Did he go to condemn her? He went to save her. He exposed the reality of her sin and that she was trying to find satisfaction. She was trying to eat and drink from things that never satisfy. And so as he asks her to draw water from a well because he was physically thirsty, he talks to her about him being ultimately the living water that will always satisfy And this imagery of of water and this imagery of food, we see it throughout John's gospel and it echoes many other things we see in the Old Testament as well. That Jesus alone is the one in whom we find nourishment. You have to have food and water for life, right? For physical life. None of us can go very long without food or water in our physical lives. And so when Jesus uses this imagery of both eating and drinking and drawing upon Him, He's talking about the nourishment and the life of our souls. There is no nourishment, there is no life apart from feeding upon Him and drinking from Him. And so it's in John chapter 6, I alluded to this earlier, where He speaks very uh, dramatically, very shockingly of the need to eat of His body and to drink of His blood. 
Listen to what he says, verse 53 and following in John 6. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. True drink. He's using this graphic and intense and shocking imagery to help us understand that to believe in Him means depend on Him, consume Him, rely on Him for everything. There's debate historically about whether or not uh, he's perhaps referring to the Lord's Supper. And we know and we understand that from the other Gospels that he took bread and that he took the cup of wine. And those speak symbolically of his body and his blood. That might be what he's alluding to here. But I think it's more understood in the context that he's saying, this is what it means to believe in me. You have to depend on my death as the means of your life to eat and drink And so I'd ask you this morning, what are you feeding on? What are you drinking from? Where are you looking for life? Is it in Christ and Christ alone? Or is it in something else? So he says, come and see, eat and drink. And then the third part of this call to believe is this, abide and go. Abide and go. And we're going to see this, all these themes, all these focuses are just woven throughout everything we're going to see in the mission discourse in chapters 13 to 16. But abide and go. Abide means to dwell with. It means to live in. It means to remain fully in all that God is in Jesus Christ. To cling to Him, to to know your life from Him, to know His care, to know His provision, to know His faithfulness, His protection, His power. It's to live with Him continually by faith, believing on Him, praying to the Father through Him, obeying Him. And then He says, go. He says, go. Now I want you to see this in chapter 15. We'll just touch on it because we'll be there in a few weeks when we look at it more fully. But in chapter 15, I'll pick it up in verse 4 of chapter 15. And Jesus speaks metaphorically of a vine and branches. And you'll get the imagery. They, they are dependent. The branches are dependent on the vine for life and nourishment and for bearing fruit, which he speaks of. So he says, beginning in verse 4, Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it, in, unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I'm the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone doesn't abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered and they're thrown into the fire and burned. He says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Then he goes on to talk more about abiding in his love and the way we abide in his love is by obeying his loving commands and trusting on him, depending on him, praying to him. And he goes on to say things about that. But then look down in verse 16. He says this, You didn't choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit that your fruit should remain so that whatever you ask in my name, the Father in my name, he may give to you. What's he telling them in this passage? Abide and go. Abide and go. 
They're not separate realities. They're concurrent realities that are found within the fabric of coming and seeing and eating and drinking, abiding and going. Participating in God's love and His light and His life-giving mission. Motivated by His love to display the light of His love and to declare the light of His holy word so that others might come to share in this eternal life. And of course, in this passage, he speaks of fruit. Fruit. What's the nature of the fruit? Well, it's the fruit of abiding. It's the fruit of going. And I I think of it kind of like a a cornucopia, if you will, of Christ-likeness. In other words, it's not just one thing. It's a cornucopia of Christ-likeness. It includes faith and obedience and love and bearing witness of Christ and experiencing answers to prayer and knowing peace and knowing joy and having an absence of fear and an absence of anxiety. And all of this is part of the fruit that we're called to bear. Now, none of us do it perfectly as His children. We're all growing in this, but this is what He seeks to bring fruition ever more fully in our lives. It's a life that overflows with and radiates with God's love and His light and His life-giving work. You might ask the question, well, how do I know if I'm born again? How do I know if I'm born of God? Simple question, is there fruit in your life? It's not going to be there perfectly. It's not there for any of us. I've been a believer by God's grace for more than 40 years, and I'm far from perfect. Far from perfect. But there's fruit because God's Spirit is at work in my life. How is it in your life? Really the summary of this call to believe with coming and seeing and eating and drinking and abiding and going is found when Jesus says, follow me. Follow me. It's the heart of discipleship to follow him, the good shepherd, be a sheep who knows his voice and who eagerly follows him because you know how good he is and how kind he is and how faithful he is. This is what Jesus said to Peter at the very end of the gospel. And I think there's an intentional reason this is found at the very end of the gospel. When you remember Peter, he had denied Christ three times. And Jesus restores him though. Jesus wasn't done with him. And in that very context, Peter gets a little nervous about what's going to happen with this other disciple. And he's comparing himself and his experience and what Jesus tells is going to happen to him to what's going on with this other disciple. Jesus' response in verses 20 to 22 is, is essence, in essence this, follow me. You follow me. You don't worry about my dealings with others, what their circumstances are, what they have, what they don't have, whatever it may be, you follow me. Friends, this is the call of discipleship. We all respond one way or the other, even this morning. And even if we're saved, He calls us to these things again and again and again to live in the fullness of that salvation by following Him, by coming and seeing, by eating and drinking, by abiding and going, by following Him. So in light of all of this, what's God saying to you right now? What does God desire for you right now? As I said at the beginning, are you convinced and assured of the greatness of God's love for you in Jesus? You know, it may be you've been a believer for some time, and and if you're honest, you maybe are thinking to yourself, you're just too sinful. You're just too weak. You're just too full of imperfections for Jesus to love you and to use you to minister to others. Maybe you look back over the landscape of your life, as I do sometimes, and, and wrestle with just failure and sin and 
just think to myself, who in the world am I? I've just blown it and failed too many times. But you friends, friends, I hope you're going to see that this is the whole point of what we see in John 13 to 16. How Jesus, in his holy love, transforms and uses broken, messed up, ordinary people to be the means of advancing his mission among other broken, messed up, and ordinary people. To people who are distressed and downcast. You see, think for a moment about who Jesus' own in the upper room were. We're told there, verse 1 of chapter 13, that he loved his own who were in the world. He loved them to the end. Think about who they were, the specific men. What do we know about them? Were they the A-team of disciples? Were they the first round draft picks of the, of the cream of the crop of disciples? You know, guys that were spiritual giants, just full of faith and obedience and selfless love and courage and wisdom. Hardly. What we see of them at this time is that they're terrified, they're selfish and they're self-centered, they're proud, they're doubting, they're arguing with one another about who's the greatest, they're weak and they're slow to understand, and they're cowardly. They're a ragtag group of misfits, if ever there was one. But they're just like us, aren't they? Very ordinary people. And for all of their weaknesses and failings, like all who truly believe, they are Jesus' sheep, whom he has loved and chosen and will love to the end. Friend, that's what God wants us to see. That's what God wants us to own. If you've never come to faith in Christ, you have no love You have no light. You have no life apart from Him. And even to the contrary, you are under God's just and righteous judgment that you will experience in hell for all eternity. He wants you to know life. He wants you to be forgiven. He wants you to be restored to Him who created you. If you have come to Him, you're not perfect any more than I'm perfect, any more than any other saint is perfect, but He wants to use us. He wants to use us to advance this mission of love and of light and of life to others. And so as we move through this series, and even beginning today, I just want to encourage you to pray. To pray. And pray maybe in two specific ways. Number one, just say, God, what do you want for me in these things? How do you want me to change? Pray that personally for yourself. I'm praying that for myself. You can pray for that for me too, but I'm saying you pray that for you. God, what do you want from me? How do you want me to change? Plead with him in that. Seek him for that. And then also pray that for this local church. God, what do you want for us as a church? How do you want us as a church to change? How can we more fully be walking in the things that you want us to? Pray in those ways. And we'll trust God to do, even as he's promised, immeasurably more than all that we can ask or imagine because of his power at work within us. That he might expose sin, cleanse sin, and empower us to be used of him to advance his love and his light and his life-giving mission in a dark and a dead world. Let me lead us in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. Pray it would bear the fruit that you've intended it to bear in each one of our lives. For your glory, for the blessing of others, For the advancement of the gospel, we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.
Amen.